Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. What about, have you got a little story? Well, I saw an interesting story. Apparently some Dutch scientists have been growing pork, not in the conventional way, by getting a pig and chopping it up. Uh, what they've been doing is growing pork in a in a dish, basically. Um, bizarre. How have they been doing that? So they've been basically getting some pig embryos, waiting to, waiting to divide a bit and get the oh. cells, which are going to turn into muscle cells, and then um, grow them up. And the advantage is that in, from one pig embryo, you can, um, in theory, they can't do it at the moment because it doesn't quite work. But they, you could get sort of thousands of pigs worth of um, sort of cell of meat out of it because it will just keep on growing and growing and growing. I um, should ban you with this stuff because I don't eat meat. That sounds disgusting. Well, see, the, the idea is that then yes. you, don't, you, don't, you can eat meat without all of the um, traumas of um, killing the animals. You'd be um, still taking their embryo, though. It's well, like, <laughs> not, oh, dear. And also, it's much better for the environment because you're, and if you grow a whole animal, um, there's lots of bits we don't eat. The animal spends a long time running around um, using up lots of energy. So if you grew meat in dishes, some people estimate it might save 80% on the energy. So it'd be much more efficient and better for the environment. But they haven't really got it working yet. At the moment, it's kind of a bit floppy and so Oh, no. They, they reckon they need to exercise their, their, their muscle cells. So they're working on ways of electrically stimulating them so they get some exercise. And they, they'll probably get a lot tougher and a lot stronger and more like real meat. Anyway, let's go to our um, first lot of questions. Um, Michael has sent an email in to say, um, uh, what about, Dr Dave, if you had a sphere made of one-way mirror, light could get in but never get back out, would it trap light energy? And could he have a patent of that if it would work? Um, If you could make a one-way mirror in the way he is thinking you could make it, Mm. then it would trap light. The problem is that's not how one-way mirrors work. Um, if you've ever looked out of the window at night, um, all you can see is your own reflection. Yeah. Because outside is really dark and um, glass reflects maybe 10% of the light which hits it. And so all you can see is a reflection. If you look out during the day, you can see everything outside really well because outside's brighter than where you are. Uh-huh. So the reflection's really dim in comparison. One-way mirrors work exactly the same way, but the mirrors reflect maybe 80% of the light. So um, that if you sit somewhere really dark and the other people in a really well-lit room, you can see the light which gets through from them, but you can't see your own reflection because you're in pitch blackness, so there's no reflection. You can't really make a, a gate which only lets light in one way and won't let it out. So it w- wouldn't work for um, actually some really quite fundamental reasons of physics because essentially that if, if you could get something which would let light in one way and wouldn't let it out, you could get a sphere which would get hotter and hotter and hotter and then you could um, run a, you could basically make a um, 
a virtual motion machine by running a, um, a heat engine from that and generating electricity from the heat engine and powering a light bulb from that. And that's not allowed by, and that, that just doesn't work due to all the physics we know. So if you could get a proper one-way mirror like he's thinking of, it would work fine. Unfortunately, I think they're impossible. What about though, if you put a, uh, another set of mirrors inside to reflect it back so you'd have a trapped sort of donut type idea? Um, the problem is if light can get into something, mm. you can also always get out of it. Mm. Um, which means that you can also mirrors can and there's nothing like there's no such thing as a perfect mirror you can get to about 99.9 a few times percent efficiency but if you had two mirrors and bounce light between the two of them it goes so fast that it's bounced back and forth so many times that it would have decayed very quickly well let's go straight to the phone sound we've got roy on the line hello roy good evening sir how are you very well thank you what's your inquiring mind after uh, the answer well, I'd to i'd like to ask dr dave uh, um we're told that the most environmentally friendly fuel for cars is hydrogen as the emissions are water and i'm wondering whether we, we could have um, hydrogen fuel power stations that's a very good question roy um Yes, if we had a source of hydrogen. I, uh... The problem is that, um, that if, if there was a big vat of hydrogen or you found that you could dig it out of the ground, then it would be a wonderful fuel and all it would produce is water as a byproduct, um, waste product. The only problem is you don't... Hydrogen, there's none of it free on the earth. You can't find it lying around. You can't dig it up anywhere. So you have to make it from something. And the most common way of making hydrogen at the moment is by taking natural gas and doing various chemistry bits with it, I think reacting it possibly with water when it's very hot. And that produces um, carbon dioxide and water and and hydrogen. Um, And so you can get hydrogen like that, which is great, but you're also producing carbon dioxide, so that's not ideal. You can also produce it by putting electric current through water it's called electrolysis. You might have done it at school. If you just pass electric current through water, um, the hydrogen comes off at one uh, electrode and oxygen comes off at the other one. The problem is that uses lots of energy and you've got to get that energy from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you'd need, if you were going to run all your cars on hydrogen, you'd need lots of extra power stations, um, which, would get, which are to generate the power to make the hydrogen. I see. So um, you could use, I mean, it would actually be a very good use of wind power because you're not too bothered about how when the power is produced because wind is a very kind of on-off sort of power. Sometimes there's lots of it and other times not very much. So it would be a great use of wind power if you had lots of wind turbines because when there's lots of wind, you can make lots of hydrogen. And when there wasn't, you could leave it for a bit. Um, so, but yeah, hydrogen actually is only a really effective, it's a very good battery. It's not really a source of energy on the Earth. I see. Thanks very much. Thanks. All right, nice to hear from you, Roy. Thank you very much. Now, um, white bread is... Is it this colour naturally, or do the makers put additives in it to make it like this? Also, why, when you burn toast, why does it go black? You should need to turn your toaster down, obviously. That's scientific, but, um, yeah, why does it? Bread is made out of wheat, and um, the seeds of wheat, so a grain of wheat. There's various bits to it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a thing called the endosperm, which is um, the fuel for the growing wheat plant and that's actually just white, it's basically starch and that's what you make white bread from um, If there's also things like the wheat germ um, which is the embryo of the wheat, which has got lots of protein in it, um, and there's some husk which has got lots of fibre in it 
Um, white bread is basically is not ad- additives. It's just taking away all the husks and the, all the husk and the wheat germ. Mm-hmm. Um, wholemeal bread has got the whole of the meal, including the wheat germ, which has got the protein in it, so it's better for you. And the bran, which has got lots of fiber in it. So there's a lot more stuff in brown bread, which is why it kind of feels like I always think there's a lot more to it when you eat it. So the the white is perfectly natural. It's just you take by taking out all the coloured bits of the flour, you you're left with white flour. Um, white goes black when you overcook it. Um, starch is basically lots and lots of sugar molecules all um, chemically glued together in great big long lines. Um, if sugar is a carbohydrate, so it's basically got carbon and water in it, hydrate, carbo, carbo, carbon, hydrate, water. Mm-hmm. So it's water and carbon reacted together in a special structure. And if you if you heat it up really hot, you drive off the water. And the first thing you actually produce is sort of caramel, um, which is um, sugar molecules joining together in different ways and driving off some of the water. Mm-hmm. Which is why it goes brown to start with, and it tastes quite good. Also tastes good because there's some protein in there and the sugars react with the protein. Uh, I think called the Maillard reaction, which produces really nice, really nice tasting sort of fried tastes. Um, and then if you cook it even harder, you drive off all, all the water and all you're left with is the carbon from the carbohydrate. And carbon is soot, it's black. Right. Now, uh, Dave from Great Yarmouth, um, he says uh, he hears very often that genes are found responsible for many diseases, but in reality, there is very much more illness and disease around. There seems to be no cures, as prophesied, and huge amounts of money go into research. Should we believe all the data, or are we looking in the wrong direction regarding areas of science? It's not my specific area, but I think the fundamental problem is that humans, for any living thing, is just atrociously, immensely, ridiculously complicated. I mean, if you imagine a computer um, and computer chips, they're the most complicated things which humans have ever built. But a single living cell is far more complicated than the biggest computer chip, than the most expensive, complicated computer chip we've ever come up with. Mm-hmm. And it's also not; it hasn't been designed. It's not designed to be. To, it's not designed for maintenance. No one. There's no instruction manual, um, and it's, it's it's been evolved. So it's a bit like a crazy sort of ha- someone who will do what, basically evolution will do whatever works now so you get all sorts of crazy slightly bizarre design decisions which look which makes sense um for that generation of animals because more than survive but at 10 million years time it kind of is a bit crazy and then they, they do you do another kind of kludge you evolve another kludge to overcome the first problem produced by the first kludge and so the, i mean it's just life is incredibly incredibly complicated and so it's difficult basically and I mean, I'm a physicist. I don't know an awful lot about biology. I know enough to know that it's hideously complicated. Um, and I think 50 years ago, we didn't know how complicated life was. And so people were overly optimistic about how easy it was to cure things because we have cured a lot of things like um, bacteria. Uh, antibiotics Ooh. have saved millions of lives. Ooh. Vaccines could have saved probably more lives than that. We've wiped out all sorts of infectious diseases. But the problem is, if you stop people dying this week, then they're alive next week and the next year and the Some next year, and they get older and older. And as <clears throat> the older people get, the more, then they just start wearing out. And then you've got to try and, rather than just stopping things which kill you, you've got to start mending things which are broken, which is another degree. It's a whole lot more difficult. And so it's just a very, very, very difficult problem. It's getting scary that we're growing meat in dishes. That's all <laughs> I can say. Anyway, let's go to the phones. Uh, we should have Tony there. Hello, Tony. Good evening, madam. Oh, hello. How are you? Lovely to hear you. Fine, lovely. And you, dear. All right, Tony, what's your question? 
You know, these uh, atomic bombs and all the rest of this nonsense, they're not very big for the damage they can do. Yeah. But let's say a, a, a bomb is just three meters long. Would they ever, do you think, be able to miniaturize it so it was only three millimeters long and on the same ratio it would still do a hell of a lot of damage? Um, certainly with conventional nuclear bombs, you do really, certainly using plutonium or uranium, the way nuclear bombs work is that you've taken an element like plutonium, which is um, unstable, and if it can split in half, that releases a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. And when it splits in half, it releases some things called neutrons, which are some parts, some subatomic particles, which make up the nucleus. And then those can fly a lot, fly off, and then bash into another nucleus and cause it to split and release more energy. And then it hits some more and release more and more and more and more, so you get a chain reaction and you get an immense amount of energy released. The problem is you need it to be a certain size so that for every one neutron you produce in a reaction it each it produces what it causes another uh, at least one more uh, nucleus to split so the so the chain keeps on going if it only causes one a half, if it only causes on on average half a nucleus to split then the it sort of fizzles and it runs it doesn't explode because you know, you you float, throw in 30 neutrons the next generation you've only got 15 the next generation you've only got seven so on until you've got none left you want it to go from 15 to 30 to um 60 to 120, so it keeps on getting... So you get more and more reactions and you get more and more energy released uh-huh. and you get an explosion. Um, so if if you make it very, very small, what tends to happen is you lose a lot of neutrons out of the side. So you... Um, there's a limit to how small you can make a nuclear bomb with conventionally um, because you just lose all the neutrons and they, it just doesn't go bang. Which makes me very pleased. <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> The Americans have built one which will fit in a rucksack. I think it was sort of probably about 50, weighed about 50 pounds. And I think it produced the equivalent explosion of about 25 tonnes of dynamite or TNT. Yeah. As far as I know, there's no way of making one smaller than that. Thank God for that. <laughs> Absolutely, Tony. Thank you so much, Honeybun. Pleasure, dear. Take have care. Have a nice evening. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Um, Colin has sent an email in from Stephen and Chella. Colin, um, he says, is it possible for the human body to be colder than the environment it's in? Or is it the case that the human body can only be as cold as the environment that it is in? Um, you can actually, you have to have various ways of cooling yourself. Um, you try and keep your body at 37 degrees centigrade. Mm. The major way of cooling yourself, one of them is, if, you're, if you're, the air temperature around you is below um, body temperature, you can send lots of blood to your skin, mm-hmm. which is why if you do lots of running, then your skin goes, your face often goes red, because your body's sending lots of blood to your skin, so when the air, ru- air rushes past it, it cools it down. Um, the other major one is um, sweating. If you sweat when the water evaporates, that can lose heat, even if the environment is hotter than you are, as long as it's dry. So humans can survive perfectly happily in deserts in the 40, 40 degrees centigrade, 50 degrees centigrade. It gets, I think it's unpleasant. Um, but as long as the air is very dry, sweating is very effective. 
and you can lose lots of heat that way and your body can stay below the environment temperature. Um, however, if it's very, very humid, um, sort of in a hot, steamy mm. <clears throat> environment, mm. then the water doesn't evaporate because the air is already full of water. And so you can't lose much heat by sweating. And then you can't, if you can't sweat and the air is hotter than you are, then you've got no way of losing heat and you will overheat and it will cause you big problems. Mm. Adrian has sent a text in saying, Sue, can you make your own bullets using custard powder? Can you ask the naked scientist, please? Um, I do, why do you want to make bullets out of custard powder? Go on. What do you I reckon, I don't know Dave? about making bullets. I've never heard of anyone trying to make bullets out of custard powder. Um, I mean, you could, if you crush together, I mean, you can shoot anything you like out of a gun. I don't know why you'd want to shoot custard powder out of a gun. It would fly outwards. Um, what you can do is burn custard powder and it will kind of form, burn really well. It burns as well as petrol if you can mix it with air well enough. We've got an experiment on the website where I blew, blew um, out of a sort of pipe thing a load of custard powder into a flame. When I blow it out of the pipe um, it mixes it with air really well. When it hits the flame it ignites and you can form, like, form a sort of two three foot fly- fireball like this don't try but, that um, at home please no don't try that at home you can i almost lost my eyebrows quite well doing it once you can shoot virtually anything out of a gun if you put enough gunpowder behind it but i don't know why you want to shoot custard powder no please don't do that adrian if you wouldn't mind um mike in culture says he's off to borneo the land of shrunken heads for christmas and wondered how do they shrink the heads and surely the skull which is made of bone would be a stumbling block good question it is a very good question. It's probably another one which will make your flesh creep. Oh, will it? Oh, dear. Go on. <laughs> um, there's various tribes, I think, in um, bits of the Pacific and uh, the Amazonian ba- basin did this. Um, basically, they want to shrink the heads, and he's right, the skull does get in the way, so you have to take the skull out of the head. No! So they take the skull out of the head, and they take out any f- the brain and any flesh inside. And then, essentially, they tan it. They add a load of tanning. They turn it into leather. Um, which preserves it, um, and then they dry it out, and they kind of deliberately shape it so it's still so the skin has still got some shape. And so yes, and as it dries out, it, it will shrink. And the reason why the skull isn't a problem is they've already taken it out. Thank you, you for that. Let's go to something a bit more cheerful now, shall we? Um, there's another little number here, um, a, an email actually uh, from Derek. He says, um, how is gold formed and how does it end up in rivers and streams where people pan for gold? Or is that just on the Western movies? Okay, how is gold formed? Um, gold is an element and it, therefore it has to be made in some kind of nuclear process. Um, it's actually made in it's a very very heavy element and all the heavy elements are actually made in exploding stars called supernovae Um, really really big stars bigger than the sun when they get to the end of their life they collapse their core collapses um, and forms either a neutron what's called a neutron star which is basically a huge atomic nucleus the size with the same mass of a star and when this does a huge amount of energy is released it causes a huge explosion and this energy um, can create heavy elements and so any elements heavier than certainly iron are made in um, supernovae and other big stars. Um, so any gold you've, um, you've got on your, uh, in your rings was made in a huge exploding star. Um, and then, the, then that got thrown out from these stars and some of that was in the stuff which made up our solar system. Um, some of uh, the stuff which made up the solar system uh, made up the Earth. Lots of the light things like hydrogen and helium got blown away by the, su- the sun. And so all you're left with the heavier stuff. And then the gold is 
Um, a lot of it is probably a lot more gold <clears throat> in the centre of the earth, but some of it, um, it's, it's sort of some of it's mixed around it all over the place. And it's in some rocks, it happens to be concentrated, and you can find little lumps of it. If you're lucky. On to the phones now. We've got uh, Janina. Hello. Hello, darling. How, How are you? you? Yeah, I'm very good. All right, you're through to Dr. Dave. What's your question? Um, right, it's a bit of a spooky one for you. Good. Okay. We have a touch lamp in our bedroom, and it's one of those, obviously, where you touch it on and off. Now, we've, um, we've been noticing that it's been coming on and off, even though it hasn't been touching anything apart from the wooden surface that it's on. Um, all by itself, for the last two months it's been doing this. We've, we actually started wondering whether we'd got ghosts in the house. Cosmic. I know, we started wondering. But then we had a bit of a, um, a coincidence thing happen. My daughter, in her bedroom, turned on her fan because we told her to turn it... Actually, no, it was off, sorry. Because we'd said to her, can you turn your fan off? Because if you were in the bedroom, you didn't need it on because it was, you know... We didn't want it to waste electric. Mm-hmm. And we realised that she'd done that before and it had actually come on the lamp. I had something very, very similar. We had one in our bedroom. Whenever we turned on the main light in the room, the lamp would turn on. Um, or sometimes it would, sometimes it wouldn't. And it, that confused me for a while until I noticed that we, we got a, ra- a clock radio by the bed Ooh. and the aerial was going up to... And I tied the aerial onto the um, lampshade and it was an energy-saving light bulb. Right. And whenever you... I think what was happening is whenever you turned on the energy-saving light bulb, um, they have a, a load of circuitry to produce quite high voltages inside to start a spark inside the tubes, which actually generates the light in an energy-saving light bulb. And that was inducing electricity to run up and down the aerial of the radio. And that was quite close to the touchlight, and that and the touchlights work because work electrically. Um, they on the surface, the surface is con- slightly conducting, and they produce they um, apply a very rapidly changing electric field um, to the surface. And when you put your finger near it, that changes the amount of current which goes into this rapidly change into which Ooh. moves in and out of the um, sphere. And so, in some senses, some of the current is flowing through your hand, and so it can detect your hand. And so if you produce a rapidly changing current in a wire near it, it, it can think, oh, there's a hand there and it will turn on. So the fan turning on and off next door was, is probably producing a whole lot of current in something near your um, touchlight or possibly even just down the mains. All right, well, keep us posted anyway. And, uh, you know, maybe Dr Dave might... Uh... Try, yeah, try moving it or trying a different power socket and see whether it does the same thing would be... A st- Start. Maybe a power surge socket or something. Yeah, like I mean, that. yeah actually, um, though I don't know if you've seen the things you get for computers to reduce Ooh. power surges. Uh, you, I have seen them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it might. I mean, just purely for interest value, it would be interesting to try plugging one of those definitely into the TV, right? And I'll- or the. Um, especially if you can borrow one or something and see whether it reduces the problem. Um, thank you very much, Janina. Thank you, darling. Uh, all right, care. you take care. Bye-bye. 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 Uh, Mark in Bletchley um, says, Could you ask Dr Dave, why do electrical appliances arc blue? Like, I live near the uh, railway line and the overheads all arc blue as they go along. My toaster does that as well, Dr Dave. If your toaster's arcing blue, then I think you need a new toaster. Um, it's a new toaster. <laughs> it's only if I press the cancel, if I press the cancel, you know, button. He goes... <gasps> Not, like, not a big one, but I can see it inside and think, aha. Uh-huh. Sounds worrying. I guess it probably could be the um, switch not being quite perfect. Yeah. Um, basically, what happens in an arc is you get electricity flowing through the air. Um, that gives air molecules a huge amount of energy. 
and they give it out. Now, um, I don't know if you ever did flame tests at school, where you got a little wire, um, dipped it in some various chemicals, and then put it into a Bunsen burner, and you get different colours coming off the wire. Yeah, if you remember that at school, and um, different elements make different colours. Um, also, if different metals make different colours, and also neon tubes, and neon uh, makes red. Um, neon, it's sorry, neon tubes are red. Mm-hmm. Um, sodium makes bright orange, and sodium in streetlights, why that's yellow. Yep. And nitrogen happens to be a pale blue colour. If you give it lots of energy, it gives out a pale blue light. And so sparks give um, air huge amounts of energy and it gives it out as blue light. Some of it is blue light. All right. Um, A question for Dr Dave from Steve, who says, um, can the process of electrolysis be reversed to manage, manufacture water from oxygen, hydrogen? What are the dangers? Simple answer is yes. (laughs) The The easiest way to generate water from hydrogen and oxygen is to set fire to them. Um, then the hydrogen burns in oxygen form, forming H2O water. Um, you can do that in an engine and get the en- some of the energy out. Um, it's probably, uh, but car engines are only fairly inefficient, only 30% efficient maybe, so that wastes two-thirds of it. It's much better um, to do it in what's called a fuel cell, which is actually just an electrolysis rig, which is running the other way, um, where you pump in hydrogen and oxygen, and it, the same cell actually produces electric current out and you can get electricity out and water, with water as an effluent. So that's what all the hydrogen fuel cells, which um, you may have heard about on various bits of science news, are trying to do, basically run electrolysis backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helen in Cambridge says, why is it that she cannot see the stars? Probably. Um, I don't know if she's living in Cambridge. The biggest reason why you can't see stars at the moment is probably the street lighting. Um, it's a big problem for astronomers, actually. It's the reason why no serious astronomy is really done in this country anymore. Um, if you're at night, lots of street lights, lots of people's uh, outside lights, they give off light, it goes up into the sky. Any dust or something in the sky will bounce it back down. So if you look up, um, the sky isn't properly black anymore. And the just general background haze reflecting the streetlights back down is so bright you can't see the stars. If you go to somewhere in the middle of nowhere, up in the Lake District, or where I grew up in South Devon on the coast, um, you can still see lots and lots of stars on a good dark night in the winter. All right, well, let's go to the phones now, because uh, we've got um, Idwell on the uh, phone. Hello. Hello. Oh, hello. Sorry about that. Got you on the wrong thing. All right, very quickly, because we're fast running out of time. If you set diesel on fire and try and pour water on it, it flares up. Why can't they make diesel vehicles with a water tank to mix it with the diesel to make the vehicle run more economically? Oh, as in because if you throw water on, then it releases, it looks like it's releasing lots more energy. Um, the reason why diesel flares up when you throw water on it is that the water boils and then it spreads the diesel out all over the place. The same thing happens with the chip pan fire. And then that mixes it with the air, which means it can burn much more quickly. It's got the same amount of energy in it, and so it will get you the same distance. Um, it's just releasing it more quickly, so it looks more impressive. So some, I think with some petrol engines, adding water can make them slightly more efficient, but I don't think that's true with diesel engines. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information... 
Look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>